Hello and welcome to The Bulletin with UBS on Monocle 24. Each week, the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance take you beyond the numbers and hype, right to the heart of the big issues of the day. Today, we're exploring banking for impact. Around the world, we're rather stuck in a state where the pursuit of economic value seems to matter more than social, environmental, human values. Despite the evident threats that this stasis poses on so many levels, from climate change to rising inequality, from resource scarcity to social breakdown, change simply isn't happening fast enough. Thankfully, however, we might be reaching a point where all the key stakeholders in government, in the public and private sectors, throughout civil society all around the world, are increasingly aligned, not just on what needs to happen to address the pace of that change, but also on the very nature of the potential solution. That solution looks like an altogether more inclusive economy, where the weight attached to social and environmental objectives is the same as that attached to profit. Rewarding companies and other players for generating that profit in such a way that contributes to the greater public good is what's known as an impact economy. The financial services sector is especially well positioned to lead that transition to an impact economy, not only because it can direct capital into areas that benefit the whole of society, but also because it can properly price social and environmental risks. Measuring and valuing impact is critically important, but also incredibly complex. So how do you go about it? Well, that's what we're going to be discussing today. To help address that challenge, the Banking for Impact Working Group aims to create a common impact measurement and valuation approach. So that's the background. Now let's meet our panel. Angela Wiebeck is the head of UBS in Society's programme office. UBS in Society is a cross-divisional organisation in UBS responsible for the implementation and advancement of UBS's group-wide sustainability strategy. Angela is working with professionals from other banks, as well as from Harvard Business School and the Impact Institute. We're going to hear from representatives of those latter two bodies as well on today's panel. First, Rob Zukowski, who's the Programme Director for Impact Investing and Sustainability Special Projects at Harvard Business School, which covers three projects, including the Impact Weighted Financial Accounts Initiative, on which he works with Angela, and also with our third guest, Adrian Dehout Ruiz, the Executive Director of Impact Institute. Impact Institute helps businesses measure, value and manage their impact on society. Angela Wiebeck, Rob Zukowski and Adrian Dehout Ruiz, thanks to you all for being with us today here on the programme. Angela Wiebeck, perhaps I might start with you. Can you begin by telling us what you mean when you use the term banking for impact? Yeah. So the banking for impact is a consortium that includes banks. So currently we have AB and AMRO, Danske, DBS and UBS at the table. It includes academia. We have Harvard Business School's Impact Weighted Accounts Initiative at the table and a social enterprise called the Impact Institute, who have all come together to create the rules for financial firms to measure and value their impacts. We are calling this Impact Measurement and Valuation, or IMV for short. And Impact Measurement and Valuation represents the rules for measuring non-financial impacts for corporations. So it allows corporate executives to consider non-financial factors in their decision-making, including the impact they're having on human, social, and natural resources, in addition to the impact that they're having on financial resources. And here, the premise is that a company's ability to create value goes beyond its ability to generate profit and benefit shareholders only. 
It's also about the environmental or human costs and benefits inherent in creating those profits. And those costs and benefits today do not appear in a company's financials, but they exist nonetheless. So let me just give you one example. Let's say you're a company that's selling jeans and that these jeans cost your consumer 100 euros a pair and that you're able to sell it, say, millions of pairs every month worldwide. Now, let's say that your costs for production, distribution and marketing of those jeans are 50 euros a pair. Now, simple accounting, you know, keeping taxes and depreciation considerations aside, would say that you're earning approximately 50 euros of profit a pair of jeans that you sell, right? Now, what if you knew that the social and environmental costs of producing those genes in terms of using scarce water, water pollution, climate change, use of child labor, or underpayment of your employees, what if you knew that all of those things together were costing the equivalent of 50 euros a pair? Would you still be selling these genes? And more importantly, do you think that this is still a pair of genes that your consumers would want to buy? And these are the types of questions that IMV is seeking to shed light on. In simple terms, impact measurement and valuation is about measuring value across all capitals. So natural, social, human, intellectual, manufactured, and financial, and for all stakeholders, employees, society, clients, investors. It's about building a holistic picture about where value is created and value is destroyed. Rob, let me bounce that over then to you and ask you a little bit about Impact Weighted Accounts Initiative and its origin story. The mission at Harvard's Impact Weighted Accounts Project is to really reimagine the state of financial accounting, right, in a way that reflects not only a company's financial contributions and value creation, but also their social and environmental performance. So we want to create transparency on internal impacts, right, in a way that is comparable and ultimately drives investor and corporate decision-making. When we look at financial statements in their current form, they are overwhelmingly weighted, and frankly, they were designed this way to show whether a company is creating value or losing value for its shareholders, right? And within that, right, debt owners can also understand whether they're going to get repaid and evaluate risk. But really, those are the sort of stakeholders to be taken care of. The environment is largely almost a free resource, a free commons, and employment is seen as something to be minimized, right? A cost to be minimized in order to maximize the value for other organizations, as are taxes, frankly, for the government. And so this is creating a lot of the incentives that we are seeing and sort of perverse incentives and challenges that we're starting to see in our market in terms of rising income inequality, sort of underpayment of taxes, And so our thought is that, well, we've spent a fair amount of time looking at the technical accounting standards. And in those, we actually are trying to think in a more comprehensive way about how to quantify an organization's reputational assets or liabilities, right? And that all of a sudden takes 
the adversarial relationship between the government or employees and shareholder value creation, right? Once you start moving those things into the balance sheet as reputational assets, all of a sudden those values, you can have co-value creation. So monetization is a really critical component of that. Adrian, we'll come back to Rob in a minute because I want to drill down in some more detail into some examples of the work that he and his team have been looking at and the insights that they've gained. But from your point of view, Adrian, can you put the Impact Institute's role here in context as well? You are also involved in this piece. What's the nature of the II's involvement? So Impact Institute, we help businesses to measure value and manage their impact on society. And we see that businesses are increasingly looking for a generative instead of an extractive business model. So where their profit they generate is based on the value they create for society. Now we see that they do that because they want to be more resilient. It is better for society, but it's also less risky. And so you won't invest in stranded assets. You won't do things that your clients won't like. So it makes good business sense. So the thing that we also see is that it's not always as easy to do this alone. It is much easier to have a generative business model if you also have investors, clients, suppliers, and peers with the same mindset. So that is why we often work in sector initiatives, such as in food or in energy. And our vision is that if you do that with different businesses, you can create what we call impact economy, where markets, entrepreneurship, and innovation work to improve society. So a key sector, of course, is the financial sector that finances all of these transitions. You think about climate change or the energy transition, et cetera. And so various banks had worked with us individual impact. And at some point, a few said, well, we would actually like to do this with peers. And well, that is how this got started. And the starting point is really that such a generative business model requires a bank to create value for each stakeholder, for their clients, for their shareholders, for local communities. And that value creation entails creating well-being for people within the environmental and social boundaries. And what we see is very important is that it can make it concrete. For example, if we look at the genes example from Angela, so one study we did focused that if you look at that, then the external social costs are around 23 euros and environmental costs 11 euros for a certain brand. That gives you information. Or for example, if you look at the diamond sector, if you have like one character of polished diamonds, if you look at artisanal mining, it's around $1,500 of societal costs. And if you look at a laboratory-grown diamonds, it's around 10% of that. And so that's 90% better impact for society. So this kind of information gives you the insights to create more value for society. Yeah, it's super interesting. And I'm fascinated by this idea of holistic value creation and this idea of a whole impact economy. And Angela, if I can come back to you, is that in a sense why UBS is involved and so committed to this? Because there's a fascination in that kind of value creation for every stakeholder. And I think something that both Rob and Adrian have mentioned already is the critical importance, given the scale of that challenge, of collaborating. This must be such a, I don't know, a satisfying project to be a part of. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's the project at our organization, I think. And for sure, for me and my team, we're very excited about it. I mean, it is very much all of the points you mentioned. And I think Adrian also touched upon some of the reasons behind why somebody like UBS would be involved in building the methodology for measuring impacts. At the basic level for us, it is really very simple. It's, we can't manage what we can't measure. 
And we need to be able to understand the full costs and benefits of our activities before we can do anything to change things. And today at UBS, we are and have been for many, many years measuring our direct impact. So these are the things we can control through, you know, whether it's how we manage our own operations, the environmental footprint of our buildings, of our employees, whether it's how we implement our corporate and client philanthropic activities through our community affairs or our Optimus Foundation, or whether it's through the work we do through impact investing offering that we offer up to our clients. And we know, for example, in 2020, I mean, we know that our community investment and employee volunteers are supporting 4.5 million beneficiaries around the world, that our Optimus work is improving the lives of 3.6 million vulnerable children around the world. And of course, as I introduced at the beginning, my role as the sustainability strategy is that we're constantly looking at how we could advance things further. And one area that we don't yet have that great grasp on is those indirect impacts that Adrian mentioned. So those are the impacts driven by our client activities. Those are our lending, financing, and investment decisions. And two years ago at UBS, we decided to become a founding signatory of the Principles for Responsible Banking. And we joined PRB knowing that it's all about understanding client impacts because we wanted to have a role in shaping this space and because the principles also complement our vision to be a financial provider of choice for those clients who do want to mobilize capital for the sustainable development goals. And so in that vein, we're actually co-leading work to develop an impact analysis methodology with the UN Environmental Program and the Finance Initiative that will be leverageable by the whole sector to analyze the impacts of their investment portfolios. But it's through this work that we realized, you know, it's about identifying positive and negative impacts in a systematic way and to do this at scale to mobilize capital for the SDGs. But we also realized that if we really want to understand the full picture of our impacts, then we need to be able to have information that will allow us to see and measure those impacts to see where value is created and destroyed for all of our activities and for all of our stakeholders. And that's really that holistic picture is what brought us to the Banking for Impact group. And I think decision-making is obviously a very important beneficial advantage for us, but it's also going to help us in terms of risk mitigation, reputation, and to advance our non-financial reporting. I mean, I think there's just many different benefits, but decision-making is definitely the core, I think, of our rationale for getting involved. Adrian de Ruiz, let me just come to you about a similar issue, I guess, which is this question actually that has been touched upon a couple of times already about the challenge of valuing impact inherently. Monetizing it, I think, was the word you used in your opening remarks. From the Impact Institute point of view, can you give us a sense of, of how that process works? An example from your side, perhaps? we go back to the goal. So that is to optimize the well-being of people within the social and environmental boundaries. So let's start with the first, so for well-being. In that way, we measure all the ways in which a company or a bank affects that well-being. For example, if you create a job at your own office or through financing a client, that job gives salary to an employee. And that person can then buy more clothes, they can get housing, medicine, And that all creates well-being. And also, for example, if you enable people that are your clients to save, that creates well-being by enabling them to build a financially secure old life. And what can create negative well-being, for example, is if people have a big loan and then they get afraid of defaulting, so then they get financial stress. 
So if you can reduce that financial stress, then you create positive well-being. And then what is interesting is that if you create a job that, of course, has financial effects on well-being, people get a salary, but it also has quite a lot of non-financial well-being that you create. So in many European countries, if people are employed, that creates, in addition to their salary, an increase in life satisfaction of around seven on a scale of 100. And then on average, you can see how much money, how much income do you need to give someone to increase the life satisfaction by one point. And that's around 2,000 euros. So the non-financial benefits of employment are then 14,000 euros in terms of having a job, feeling valuable, etc. And that gives you an idea. And then you can also compare that financial benefit of a job with a non-financial benefit. And that is in terms of well-being. Then, of course, you also have the social and environmental limits. And that is important because you don't want to be trade-offing deforestation and child labor against well-being, for example. You have to recognize that there are those boundaries. And because of that reason there, we look at the remediation costs. For example, if there's a ton of CO2 emissions, what does it cost to take that out of the air? And these so-called abatement costs are around $180 per ton if we take the two degrees from the Paris Agreement as the target. And so that gives you quite clear boundaries. So if you emit a ton of CO2, they know, well, then actually we should pay $180 to take that out of the air to manage realizing the Paris Agreement. And then another important aspect is which part of the societal effects are then for the investor? Because if you look at your total impact on society, you should also look at the long-term investor value. And that is, of course, just the profit that you make, but it's also the human capital you create. So if you train your people, then you also look at what are the discounted future profits you get by training the people in this year. Or if you create intellectual capital, you also look at that. Or if you have certain carbon risk in your portfolio, what is the effect of that on your future profitability? And there, the interesting thing, of course, is that if you look at share prices of listed companies, the majority of that is in non-financial assets. It's not on the balance sheet. And so just from a standard classical investor perspective, quantifying and monetizing these non-financial capitals is crucial. By way of actually wrapping things up a little, I wanted to get a view, maybe from each of you, on this idea that you've all spoken so interestingly about these different kinds of processes, trying to get these different standards and values. It sounds like it's a complicated and frankly very labour-intensive task, but it feels like we're at an inflection point and that this could be different. Uh, Maybe if I can come back to you, Angela, in this regard, in terms of some closing thoughts, is this an opportunity here to kind of standardise something that's very complicated, that's maybe over-complex, to make it simpler and to make a difference? And despite the amount of work it's going to be, to really affect meaningful change? Are you optimistic that we're at that point? Absolutely. Yes. (laughs) I mean, I think the point that we've been making repeatedly in this discussion, at least on the bank side, is that for the sector, for financial institutions, the majority of our impacts do stem from our clients, right? They're indirect impacts. And all the financial institutions across the world are doing everything they can, I think, on the direct side to manage their own greenhouse gas emissions, their own environmental footprint, to do the work that they need to do on the philanthropic side, and also to support clients with sustainable solutions that support the SDGs. So I think that's 
all very much happening. But until we actually start to measure and value externalities, and that's what we're talking about, we're talking about measuring those things that currently are not in financial statements that, well, they might show in the share price because of reputational and media issues, they're not inherently calculated in through the financial reporting. And until we do that, we won't really have that full picture. And as a sector that's at the core of the economy and that's involved in defining how things are valued economically, this is a very crucial role. It is going to be, as you said, complex. You know, we are talking about quantifying, valuing, attributing impacts and aggregating them as well. And for financial This means that we have to do all of those activities for all of the economic players that we support. So fundamentally, we're looking at the impacts of the economy when we're talking about this. That said, I think until we do that, we won't have a full picture of where the real opportunities are for a sustainable future. And I think that we can play a big role there. And we need to get other sector players also at the table to help us to test this work, to give feedback, to enhance it. And I think together we can hopefully get to a place where we are supporting a more inclusive market-based system where we're not just looking at financial impacts, but we're also looking at the impacts on human, natural, social capitals, and that we can together create a more prosperous future for all. Adrian Ruiz, let me just ask you about this. It's interesting, obviously, we're hearing from Angela there about these concrete commitments, maybe a little way down the track. But even now, this very clear inclusion of these externalities that so far just haven't been part of the the picture, in your view, as a final thought, is that what makes this different? I mean, I guess we're particularly looking at this focus on, on banking and the financial sector. But is it the fact that this is really seeking to bring those things that have so far been without really getting them into the heart of the discussion? Exactly. It is what you say, because you can have lots of metrics, lots of numbers, but you cannot really base decisions on them if you don't bring them to the same unit, because then you just have 180 metrics on climate, on jobs, on child labor, and you cannot make decisions. So it won't change the system. So really monetizing it, we see that it makes a big difference. And it is already possible. There are businesses and banks who have done it with assurance from the auditor. In a way, the measurement part is the easiest. You can have that measurement part up and running a year within the bank. But the real challenge is then transforming the business. How are you going to use this information to foster generative business models throughout the bank? I'll just add, there's this concept of a thin place, right? Sort of like there's a sort of system that has inertia, right? But there's a thin place that you can sort of poke it and then cause change very quickly. I am convinced that capital markets, investors, and banks are that critical thin place. I'm not describing them, by the way, as thin organizations. Please don't take any offense, right? But what I mean by that is like once they turn and start making their decisions this way, the way in which capital moves in our systems will not be the same. And it is truly capital that drives economic activities around the world. It defines which business types get emphasized and which do not. And so having a much more comprehensive and scalable approach for these huge integrated financial resources and for the money managers, there's a huge concentration of money managers in a few of asset under management and a few money managers. 
if we can get a few of those on board, that's what I'm calling the thin place of like the system really moving quickly. And that brings us to the end of this edition of The Bulletin with UBS, setting the agenda in the fast-moving world of finance every week here on Monocle 24. If you're eager to find out more, then watch out for the Banking for Impact paper, which will be published soon. Head to UBS.com for more. As ever, you can listen again and find out more about this programme at monocle.com or via your preferred podcast platform. The Bulletin with UBS on Monocle 24.